welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Richard Caparola. On Thursday, September 30th through Saturday, October 2nd, Ricardo Muti leads the orchestra in a program including Brahms' Violin Concerto, Leonidas Cavacos will be the soloist, and Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Brahms' Violin Concerto, a work lasting about 40 minutes. Josef Joachim and Johannes Brahms became instant friends when they met in May 1853. Both men were in their early 20s, and although Brahms was an unknown, with all his greatest music still to come, Joachim was already a celebrity, the most brilliant and promising violinist around. Joachim described Brahms as pure as a diamond, soft as snow, reminding us that the composer's familiar portly figure and bushy beard were later acquisitions. With music as their bond, they became close, confiding secrets, enjoying each other's company, and sharing the things they loved. It was Joachim who insisted that Brahms meet the Schumanns, a visit that changed the young composer's life. Robert wrote his last critic's column to introduce Brahms to the public, and Clara became a confidant and a valued colleague, if not more. It was simply a matter of time before Brahms would offer to write a concerto for his best friend. Brahms had overcome his fear of tackling the forms in which Beethoven triumphed and had completed two symphonies and a piano concerto. The violin concerto was sketched during a summer holiday at Perchach in 1878, just across the lake from the country house where Alban Berg would write his violin concerto nearly 60 years later. Brahms picked the key of D major, the tonality of the second symphony he had recently finished, and planned the concerto in four movements, an unprecedented scheme. While composing, Brahms often turned to Joachim for technical advice about the solo part. Joachim not only knew the instrument's capabilities better than anyone, but also was a gifted composer himself. When they met in 1853, Joachim was the more accomplished composer. Brahms used to let him see everything he wrote, seeking both criticism and encouragement. It was Brahms' own decision to abandon the four-movement design and to replace the two inner movements with a single adagio. The leftover scherzo may have been salvaged for the four-movement B-flat piano concerto Brahms put aside in order to work on this concerto. He was still making further adjustments after the first performance in Leipzig on New Year's Day 1879. The work was not a success. At the premiere, the applause was lukewarm, though many in the audience were distracted by Brahms' failure to hook up his suspenders properly. When Clara Schumann heard it earlier in a private performance, she commented that the orchestra and soloist were thoroughly blended, but others saw that distinction differently. Hans von Bülow, a man seldom without opinions, said that Brahms had written a concerto against the violin. The violinist Bronislav Hubermann elaborated, it is a concerto for violin against the orchestra, and the violin wins. Eventually, Brahms' work was widely performed and greatly admired. It was even deemed worthy of standing beside Beethoven's single violin concerto. Brahms had invited the comparison himself by picking the same key and by writing for the violinist who had recently put Beethoven's concerto back in circulation. 
Brahms honors the classical model. In the first movement, he writes a double exposition, one for the orchestra alone, the second led by the violin. This would be unremarkable, except that most concertos written in the 70-odd years since Beethoven's had struggled to find novel ways to proceed. Brahms has new things to say, but he says them in a form that Beethoven would have recognized immediately. The first movement is on a grand scale, with a wealth of melodic material. Brahms once said that melodies were so abundant in Perchach that one had to be careful not to step on them. Brahms presents a full harmonic itinerary that allows a side trip to the distant reaches of C major at the beginning of the development section. Beethoven went there too, and Brahms includes in the recapitulation further adventures in F-sharp and B-flat, each a major third in either direction from D. As a final bow to tradition, Brahms reigns in the orchestra near the end of the movement and gives the soloist the opportunity to improvise a cadenza. This is the last major concerto to grant that license. Even Beethoven had started writing his cadenzas down, although with a musician of Joachim's taste and talent, Brahms had nothing to fear. He would surely be relieved to know that the cadenza Joachim eventually committed to paper quickly caught on and is sometimes performed today. At these concerts, Christian Tetzloff plays the cadenza by Josef Joachim. Brahms opens the slow movement with one of his finest melodies given to the oboe against a woodwind accompaniment. The Spanish virtuoso Pablo de Sarasate allegedly refused to play this concerto because he didn't care, quote, to stand on the platform, violin in hand, to listen to the oboe playing the only real tune in the whole work. Sarasate would more easily earn our sympathy if Brahms didn't quickly turn from the oboe to the violin, having saved for it an unbroken outpouring of song that carries us through to the end of the movement. We don't immediately associate Brahms with merriment, but the finale of the concerto is unmistakably jolly, filled with good-natured themes and flashes of outright wit. The spirit is that of the gypsy violinist, an intentional allusion to Joachim's Hungarian heritage. The final march, with trumpets and drums, rises to a climax and then abruptly unwinds like a mechanical toy before it ends with a bang. A footnote about friendship. Only two years after the premiere of the Violin Concerto, the fellowship between Brahms and Joachim began to falter. Brahms couldn't stand to watch Joachim become increasingly jealous of his wife, and by the time the couple divorced in 1884, the composer and the violinist were no longer speaking. Joachim continued to play Brahms' music everywhere, but refused to answer his letters. Finally, Brahms wrote the double concerto as a peace offering, and Joachim, like so many others since, could not resist this warm and heartfelt music. The friendship was restored, but the old spark was missing. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Brahms' Violin Concerto. And now on to Beethoven's Symphony No. 7, a work lasting about 41 minutes. Here is what Goethe wrote after he first met Beethoven during the summer of 1812. His talent amazed me. Unfortunately, he is an utterly untamed personality who is not altogether in the wrong in holding the world to be detestable, but surely does not make it any the more enjoyable either for himself or for others by his attitude. 
We're told that the two men walked together through the streets of Teplitz, where Beethoven had gone for the summer, and exchanged cordial words. When royalty approached, Goethe stepped aside, tipping his hat and bowing deeply. Beethoven, indifferent to mere nobility, walked on. This was a characteristic Beethoven gesture, defiant, individual, strongly humanitarian, intolerant of hypocrisy, and many listeners find its essence reflected in his music. But before confusing the myth with the man, consider that throughout his life, Beethoven clung to the Thon in his name because it was so easily confused with Fawn and its suggestion of lofty bloodlines. Without question, Beethoven's contemporaries thought him a complicated man, perhaps even the utterly untamed personality Goethe found him. He was a true eccentric who adored the elevated term Tondichter, poet in sound, and refused to correct a rumor that he was the illegitimate son of the King of Prussia. But he looked like a homeless person. His outfit once caused his arrest for vagrancy. There were other curious contradictions. He was disciplined and methodical, like many a modern-day concertgoer. He would rise early and make coffee by grinding a precise number of coffee beans, but lived in a squalor he alone could tolerate. Certainly, modern scholarship, as it chips away at the myth, finds him ever more complex. We don't know what Goethe truly thought of his music, and perhaps that's just as well, for Goethe's musical taste was less advanced than we might hope. He later admitted he thought little of Schubert's songs. The general perception of Beethoven's music in 1812 was that it was every bit as difficult and unconventional as the man himself, even perhaps to most ears, utterly untamed. This is our greatest loss today, because Beethoven's widespread familiarity of a dimension known to no other composer has blinded us not only to his vision so far ahead of his time that he was thought out of fashion in his last years, but to the uncompromising and disturbing nature of the music itself. His Seventh Symphony is so well known to us today that we can't imagine a time that knew Beethoven but not this glorious work. But that was the case when the poet and the composer walked together in Teplitz in July 1812. Beethoven had finished the A major symphony three months earlier, envisioning a premiere for that spring that did not materialize. The first performance would not take place for another year and a half, December 8, 1813. That night in Vienna gave the rest of the 19th century plenty to talk about. No other symphony of Beethoven's so openly invited interpretation, not even the sixth, the self-proclaimed pastoral symphony with its bird calls, thunderstorm, and frank evocation of something beyond mere eighth notes and bar lines. To Richard Wagner, Beethoven's seventh symphony was the apotheosis of the dance. Berlioz heard a rond de paison in the first movement. Choreographers in our own time have proven that this music is not, however, easily danceable. And there were other readings as well, most of them finding peasant festivities and Bacchic orgies, where Beethoven wrote simply, Vivace. The true significance of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony is to be found in the notes on the page, in his distinctive use of rhythm and pioneering sense of key relationships. By the time it's over, 
we can no longer hear the ordinary rhythm of a dotted eighth note followed by a sixteenth note in the same way again, and even if we have no technical terms to explain it, we sense that our basic understanding of harmony has been turned upside down. Take Beethoven's magnificent introduction of unprecedented size and ambitious intentions. He begins decisively in A major, but at the first opportunity moves away, not to the dominant E major as historical practice and textbooks recommended, but to the unlikely regions of C major and F major. Beethoven makes it clear that he won't be limited to the seven degrees of the A major scale, which contains neither C nor F natural, in planning his harmonic itinerary. We will hear more from both keys, and by the time he's done, Beethoven will have convinced us not only that C and F sound comfortably at home in an A major symphony, but that A major can be made to seem like the visitor. But that comes later in his scheme. First, we move from the spacious vistas of the introduction into the joyous song of the Vivace. Getting there is a challenge Beethoven relishes, and many a music lover has marveled at his passage of transition, in which stagnant, repeated ease suddenly catch fire with the dancing, dotted rhythm that will carry us through the entire movement. The development section brings new explorations of C and F, and the coda is launched by a spectacular, long-sustained crescendo that is said to have convinced Weber that Beethoven was ripe for the madhouse. The Allegretto is as famous as any music Beethoven wrote, and it was a success from the first performance when a repeat was demanded. At the indicated tempo, it is hardly a slow movement, but it is sufficiently slower than the music that precedes it to provide a feeling of relaxation. By designing the Allegretto in A minor, Beethoven has moved one step closer to F major. He now dares to write the next movement in that unauthorized but by now familiar key. And he can't resist rubbing it in a bit by treating A major when it arrives on the scene not as the main key of the symphony, but as a visitor in a new world. We don't need a course in harmony to recognize that Beethoven has taken us through the looking glass and that everything is turned on its head. To get back where we belong, Beethoven simply shatters the glass with the two fortissimo chords that open the finale and ushers us into the triumphant fury of music so adamantly in A major that we forget any past harmonic digressions. When C and F major return, as they were destined to do in the development section, they sound every bit as remote as they did in the symphony's introduction, and we sense that we have come full circle. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony No. 7. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.